0: Welcome to the Global Thought Podcast, brought to you by the Committee on Global Thought, or CGT, at Columbia University. I'm Vishaka Desai, Chair of the Committee on Global Thought and Senior Advisor for Global Affairs to the President of Columbia University. Today, we welcome CGT member Manan Ahmed, Associate Professor of History at Columbia University. Professor Ahmed, is a historian of South Asia with a focus on intellectual, critical history and philosophy of history, along with colonial and anti-colonial thought. He is particularly interested in how modern and pre-modern narratives create understanding of places, communities and intellectual genealogies for their readers. So it is appropriate that as a CGT member, we actually uh, have Professor Ahmed talk about his most recent book, The Loss of Hindustan and the Invention of India, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. Professor Ahmed, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Vishaka. I'm really delighted to be here and really delighted to share my work uh, and thoughts with uh, the audience of CGT.
0: We are really delighted, Manan, because you are one of those rare individuals who can focus deeply into a specific moment in time and then zoom out again to think about the implications of that micro detailed analysis that has implication for not just that place and that time, for the larger world and the larger geography. So it seems to me that we might start the question with that very idea that the way you organize this book it seemed to me was particularly relevant in the way you would think about going deep and going wide. Mm. So can you tell us sort of the impetus for doing the book the way you have organized it? Even though it's focused on the 17th century, you're really looking at big questions that have relevance elsewhere as well. Thank you,
1: Uh, that's a terrific question. And actually it helps me kind of think of the genesis of the book as it were. Uh, The book really started um, when I took my first job, which was teaching in Berlin uh, at the FU, and um, I was in a I was a, in a in a group of um, young academics, early career folks, and we were basically sitting around reading uh, folks like Marx and Kant and Fichte and Herder and these Germans. I mean, I had, I was new to Germany, so I thought I should read their elders, I guess, and. Uh, a conversation there took me to Kant's library, uh, both the proverbial one in the first instance and then the actual physical one in the second instance. And I, wa- I was very curious. I thought, you know, what did Kant know about India? And how did he learn it, if he knew anything about India? And of course, he knows a lot about India because um, it became such a—it's an important part of, of both his anthropology lectures but uh, also uh, on his theory of aesthetics. Um, and so, as I was kind of making my way through Kant's library, um, I noticed that there was a particular translation that he had, a German translation, of, uh, uh, of uh, this gentleman named Alexander Dow. And Alexander Dow, in 1768, had uh, rendered into English a Persian history, uh, which was a history written by someone named Muhammad Qasim mm. Farishta and uh, Dao's rendering of Mohammed Qasim Farishta was called the History of Hindustan. And Dao was a member of the East India Company. He was part of the, you know, he was in the kind of broad cluster we ca- we now call the Scottish Enlightenment, people like David Hume, et cetera. He's friends with these people, went to high school with them. Um, and so his rendering of a history of Hindustan uh, went from Hume to Voltaire, um, private correspondence and then to Kant and, and these other, um, uh, other members of what we, again, uh, in retrospect, call the kind of, um, you know, the first generation of intellectuals who constituted a universal philosophy of history. So here I was in this library, thinking about this one text, which is a history of Hindustan, rendered into English and then into German, into Kant's library, and I said to myself, you know, I never was told by any other historian, any teacher, that India was not only an abstract reality for Europe's thought, but also had this tangible connection to the colony, and to the and between the colony and the metropole, mm-hmm. so the book became uh, a, a way in which I picked this thread of this particular rendering in the eighteenth century, um, and I started to basically think about the ways in which Alexander Dow's rendering of this Persian history finds its way into all kinds of nooks and crannies of the eighteenth century. Now. Uh, in the meantime, I wrote my first book um, and um, and I turned my attention to kind of thinking about this book seriously. And at this point, uh, the second big, I guess, intellectual uh, shift occurred, which was that I started thinking very seriously about decolonial thought and decolonial thinking and how do we, uh, you know, actually render, as a teacher of mine once put it, um, you know how do we well he put it as provincializing <laughs> Europe but you know I I took my cue from uh, fanal and you know how do you put Europe in its proper place and so the book when I sat down to write it had to contest two I think countervailing uh, forces one is that we as post-colonized subjects cannot tell our own stories without going through Europe and that's literally because our material is in Europe's archive, our thought has been digested and reframed by Europe, our ways of writing, you know, the language in which you and I are speaking at the moment, our our presence of European colonialism in our midst. that, so that's one force. And then the countervailing force is how do, how do I tell that story of Europe before Europe's arrival? So this person, this historian of the early 17th century, Muhammad Qasim Farishta, now he also imagined a world uh, and you know he called that world Hindustan or he was part of that world called Hindustan. And I wanted to tell his story, I wanted to tell how his idea of Hindustan existed, what what we're what were the kind of contours of it? What were the f- shapes of it? And how do we understand it? And so these two countervailing, um, I guess, forces or intellectual uh, concerns that I had um, made for a difficult writing process in the beginning. Um, you know, some people said to me as I was thinking out loud that maybe you want all of, you know, you want to chronologically arrange your book, so you know, you go from you know, tenth century to the twentieth, and then individual chapters would be Persian or uh, English or French or German. Um, and I wanted to resist that. And so what ended up happening was that I, I arranged each chapter to, to basically uh, be a, uh, a type of representation of the intertwined nature of these histories that we are inheritors Mm -hmm. of so both the french uh, i mean both the european histories but the persian and sanskrit and um you know braj and hindu histories that i i contend with in the book
0: so it seems to me that in a way in order to decolonize you also have to Mm pre-colonize you have to go to the pre-colonial times to really understand what that would be. And what was very striking in the book is that you really give us the flavor of Farishta. And I wonder if you had gone to Farishta directly without Kant, would you have thought about it organizing the way you have? Because when you read the book, it just feels so natural. Mm-hmm. To go from the people and the places and the concepts of locations, geographies, etc. Um, and because that's not how Farishta organized his book. Right.
1: Right. That's, I mean, just to pick up your thread. And the first, so first is writing in between somewhere in between 1590 and 1610 or so. And, you know, Frista is a he's a diplomat, he's a medical practitioner, he's a, a sort of an intellectual at large. Um, he is commissioned, as it were, uh, to write a, a history of Hindustan. And he is very much invested in this idea of writing a, a new history. And, you know, new meaning new in the sense of its genres, but also new in the sense of its structure and its form. And all of the examples of the histories that, that are contemporary to Farishta in Persian or Arabic uh, or Sanskrit or uh, that he, um, you know, he's reading himself, so they're, uh, they're his predecessors or his ancestors, um, you know, they would organize a history through genealogies, whether genealogy of a you know, royal personage or god or gods, or a genealogy of a place, uh, you know, a particular city and its birth, et cetera. And so, first, basically, what he does is he rejects, or rather, rejects, reforms both of these approaches and combines them by putting geography first and genealogy second, uh, which I think is a pretty radical move. Although, you know, nowadays, now that we write histories of nation state all the time, it doesn't seem that, you know, unique. But, uh, you know, if you imagine it for um, this early 17th century, I can assure you it's it's a radically new perspective. Um, And so how do I understand that newness, that radicalness, sitting in the 2018, 2019, when I'm writing this book? The problem I face is that that European thought that had rendered Farishta, catalogued Farishta, put Farishta in different archives in Europe, had also judged Farishta, had also told me what to think about Farishta, and that's the issue, right? So when I was going through my training or if I picked up a book on you know, Persian history writing or history writing or uh, historiography of the Muslim world, Farishta, if there was an entry on Farishta, the entry would say, well, he's a derivative, he's not really that smart, he just paraphrases different people Um, No reason you know, and he's writing far from any center of power So he has no why would you read like someone writing in some village? about you know things that we already have other people writing about so I think the challenge as decolonial thinkers we have is that we have to kind of not only put Europe in its place but we have to unlearn how we have been taught to think about the pre-colonial and so for me, uh, in order to understand the newness or the importance or the significance of Frishta, I had to first and foremost defamiliarize myself from what Europe had already written about Farishta, starting in, like I said, 1768. So that's, a, you know, that's two, 230 years worth of kind of
0: <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> historiography that you have to contend with. Yeah.
0: I mean, at the same time, it seems to me that when you talk about it, that part of the colonial legacy was to privilege the Mughals in the North and therefore provincialize those who are not part of that system. And at the same time, it seems to me that Farishta must have been important for Kant to have actually paid any attention to that or others who have written about it. So if you were to say that Farishta's contribution is both about the way he constructs that history, but also the way he and other especially Persianate writers have described Hindustan. Most people don't think of Hindustan the way you have described it in the book. So tell us a little bit about that idea of the region called Hindustan and what it entailed and how does Farishta go about defining it?
1: Thank you. I mean, so that's the, you know, I think in the book I mentioned that, you know, we don't know what America was called before it was labeled America. We don't know what Australia was called before it was labeled Australia. Um, we have very limited idea of the ways in which we can think of uh, indigenous concepts pre-colonial encounter and we also have very little awareness of how to think about what indigenous thought um, Actually represents in the term in the types of intellectual history So when we think about India or South, you know, first of all nowadays, we, we begin by thinking about South Asia as a term and South Asia is a term uh, really comes into uh, f- sort of into, into the foreground um, after the First World War and really into academic fashion after the Second World War. And, and so it's really during kind of the area studies heyday that everything becomes South Asia and South Asia becomes a way in which we can think about Ind- India, Pakistan, Bangladesh after um, you know sometimes Afghanistan but not really, Nepal, Sri Lanka. Um, Hindustan as I I try to show in in my book, is a a concept that has a 800 year long history and legacy. And it's meant from its earliest inception to to its end sometime in the uh, early 19th century, um, everything between Kabul and the Bay of Bengal and everything from the Himalayas to Lanka. So it's 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 truly a kind of capacious and and uh, expansive geographical construct, with a clear understanding that within this expanse of geography, there are um, individual languages, individual cultures, individual religions, individual polities that are not subservient to each other, but can coexist and are part of the same um, cultural. Uh, conversation part of the same uh, discursive spheres Um, and so Farishta to him all of this is like writing about water (laughs) do you know what I mean like he he doesn't need to make anything out of it it's natural to him he exists in this world everything is uh, you know he can as he you know he says well Mahabharata is the most authentic history so if we're going to talk about Hindustan, we will begin with the Mahabharata, and we will explain Mahabharata's uh, in, in understanding of time and understanding of place. And of course, after Mahabharata, we would want to maybe go to the, the Quranic study of Adam's, uh, you know, um, expulsion from heavens. And of course, we would then say that Adam f- first tastes food once he lands in lanka first tastes food in hindustan and never again eats again because he can't digest any food of any other place only <laughs> hindustan has heavenly food so once adam is walking around earth looking for eve hawa uh, he he does he never eats again after his first bite so to farishta this is completely natural and that's the world he's writing and he's describing as a background but of course to us to us we are the you know the the we sit in the aftermath not only of 1947's partition but 1971's partition and subsequent wars and and you know a lot of demonization of the other in all of these nation-states
0: and so in a we, way, you could say that we sit also after the 1907 partition of Bengal. After the
1: 1907, 1907 the history of partitions that we, are, we have right. to contend with. And so for us, um, that vision seems um, fantastic in a sense, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the usage of the word fantastic as wondrous or mm-hmm. maybe false, uh, made up um but it's not it's it, it it was a fact and and in fact what i try to show in the book is that it took europe took the british and i say europe precisely because it, it wasn't just a british colonial project but british and french and dutch and german it took europe almost 200 years to erase hindustan and to create uh you know what what becomes british india by 1857. So that it took 200 years of kind of mapping of ethnographies, of translation projects, of political um, uh, and territorial colonization for Europe to supplant this idea of Hindustan with the idea of India or the British India. And so that's the kind of um, you know epistemic violence that I think um, I wanted to highlight in the work.
0: So describe for our listeners, when you make a distinction between Hindustan in the pre-British sense, in the Farishta sense, and the idea of India, the way the British colony of India gets established, how would you make that distinction between the two?
1: So I think in the, in the early part of the um, of the... 19th century proper but uh, you know in the book I, I, I spent a lot of time with uh, 16th uh, 17th century sources but but in the beginning of the 19th century proper what you see is you you see this idea of antiquity that is incredibly important for Britain uh, and this idea of antiquity is reliant on archaeological discoveries and that's where Ashokan pillars and Ashokan uh, uh, kind of uh, artifacts are, are dug up um, but also the translation of Sanskrit epics that belong to a so-called Golden Age of India. And the reason that this becomes an important part is that India, taking, taking itself from, it, uh, take the, for the British colonial uh, uh, sources, India is, is something that they can connect to Alexander's conquest of the quote-unquote East. So India a lot becomes a, a, a hermeneutical space and, and, and a metonymic space that is makes a type of convergence possible between ancient Greek and ancient India, and that chronology is impossible with Hindustan, right? That so India becomes something that can have an ancient. Now, why can't Hindustan have a nation? The reason Hindustan can't have a nation, an ancient, is because Hindustan under the colonial regime is tied specifically to Islam, and now Islam is something that comes into the world in the seventh century, and and also comes into the world outside of the subcontinent. So it's 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 part of the Arabian desert. So for the colonial imagination, Hindustan uh, or Islam for that. Can never have antiquity. And what the colonial project is based on is this idea of a antiquity that yes. links them to a- ancient Greek, their own antiquity, in other words. Mm. Um, and I think that is one of the main reasons that this, um, I, I cite in the book a, a, a very important. Um, I call them soldier scribes, but uh, other other intellectuals might call them uh, intellectual. Uh, uh, William Jones. Uh, William Jones has this uh, line as early as 1770, which says that you know if you write in the Arabic script, then only the thought can, that can be expressed is uh, it can only be only belong to a Muslim. And mm-hmm. if you write in Devanagari script, only then the ancient Indian thought could be um, understood. So, you know, this idea that language script and, and religion and, and peoples are separate and belong to different spheres um, is, the, is the idea as early as 17th you know, uh, late 18th century. Uh, but that's the, con- that's the idea that <clears throat> is at the heart of this invention of ancient India, which is devoid of any presence of Muslims.
0: I think what's very interesting about that is that in a way, it is the British invention of that idea that Muslim and Islam are outside phenomenon coming in, which to some extent is true because in the sixth century, seventh century, but it is as early as in the eighth century that you already have the evidence of uh, the example. So then for a millennium, It has been part of a system. Why is it still considered outside? That would be the question. But it seems to me that what you are really talking about is that it also doesn't take into account that Devanagari itself was only in a Northern tradition. Mm -hmm. So the South Indian languages had nothing in common with that. So why would you put the Persian script outside of the subcontinent, but not the South Indian script. So there is something about not uh, to divide up things by religion, which actually does not seem to be relevant for a place like India. And it seems to me that the colonial experience in other parts of the world has also been continuing this notion of division Mm -hmm. that are artificially imposed by the outside that were not part of the reality. Would you say that that is then a particular Western invention of trying to privilege one idea over another?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a wonderful point. And in fact, you know if you, if, you, if you read um, kind of the earliest Portuguese accounts, including Vasco da Gama, Vasco da Gama is completely unsurprised and is looking for Christians in the subcontinent, St. Thomas and later on even Jesus. Um, so Christianity for the British by the nineteenth century is not a religion of the outside, even though clearly Christianity comes into being far from the subcontinent. Um, similarly, Judaism is never considered to be a religion of the outside, or Zoroastrianism is not considered to be the religion of the outside. So there is a logic within which it's it's the Muslim faith that's um, kind of pinpointed by the British as belonging to the outside versus something that you know belongs to the inside. Um, and to the point about you know I think about the the, the notion of um, identifying difference and then postulating difference as destiny, um, that's certainly by the 19th century is um, the kind of first order logic of colonial uh, rulemaking. Um, But what I tried to show um, was that actually, that story has its roots in the 16th century. So as I mentioned Vasco da Gama, now he's unsurprised to find Christians, he's looking for the Christians, he thinks there's the legend of John, the you know, uh, Prester John, that tells them that there's always going to be a Christian on the other side of the... But I, you know, it's something that I think, um, I'm, I'm hoping my book can help people see is that he also knows that the Muslims are going to be there. Now how does he know that the Muslims are going to be there in the subcontinent? When he goes out for looking for India, how does he know Muslims will go be there? And the reason he knows Muslims will be there, because for Vasco da Gama and even for the other, um, you know, other kind of uh, late um, 16th, early 17th century um, uh, Europeans, the Crusades were not over. They were not over and they were not a part of the past. So they were in a struggle with the Muslim rulers in Jerusalem and in, in the Near East. But... They were looking for them in along the coast of Africa, and they were looking for them in the subcontinent. So, y- in other words, Portuguese enter the subcontinent not as discoverers of a new space, but as opening up a new front in a war against Islam that has been ongoing for them, for, you know, 400 years, including the Reconquistas, the so-called Reconquista that Portugal and Spain are are part of.
0: So in a way, it seems to me why the book is so important for me or for people who are interested in recovering where did the idea of multiplicity of cultures, religions, languages that were so central to India began to fray and fall apart and how much they're part of a colonial project as you go forward and what you point out is that it was a project that was actually long term it was not just in 1857 it began even earlier than that so as we go forward and you have written eloquently about historians in india who also were trying to grapple with this um, as part of the nationalist movement, if you will. Where do we go from here? And the students who read this book and other people you come in contact with, what is the implication Mm -hmm. of such an investigation in a more kind of here and now way?
1: I mean, I think I'll speak again just um you know, um, from my own perspective of writing this book, um, I I find myself understanding and facing this truth uh, that by 2050, we will have 300 million people displaced in the subcontinent, right? They will not be able to drink the water. They will not be able to uh, live under the heat. Um, The cities will be, the port cities like Bombay and Karachi will not be inhabitable for for much of what their footprint is at the moment. And so for me if we look ahead to 2050 if we say you know uh, in 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 30 years we face a a type of um, apocalyptic crisis in front of which the only support that we can have is each other as individuals as communities as a social world and with that perspective how are we going to work when the nation states that comprise of the subcontinent have been fighting each other for you know 74 plus years now um, so I think one would one finds oneself um, defeated like all we have to face is a future water wars and nuclear annihilation and I feel that as I was writing this book I wanted to remind myself that there are not-too-distant past ways of working together, thinking together, speaking with each other, understanding that we're different in maybe religion or in in a form of cultural practice or in a language, but we are together in the sense of we face a common future and a common um, uh, understanding of our shared past. Um, and I think that's where I want us to think about. With one, I want us to draw from <coughs> this deep res- reservoir and say, yeah, it's, it's, we don't, if, if we have war, it's okay. Let's, let's say that we Hindus and Muslims have been enemies for 200 years. Okay. Not really true. Not true. I know. I know. Yes. Absolutely not true. But let's say that is. Well, what we have 800 years also of coexistence, of thinking together and we definitely have to work together for the future that awaits us and i think uh, if my book can give some support to that type of idea i'll consider it very successful
0: right i mean i do think that what you do bring up a it has huge implications for south asia but the way you have described it and the way you have articulated your rationale is also to connect the micro to the macro meaning ask yourself whose history, who has written that history? Where does that come from? How do you unpack it to be able to be open to interpretations that go beyond the colonial imposition that has been part of our life? And so it seems to me that one thing that I will take away from the book very much is not just as a historian of South Asian art, but also as somebody who is interested in the larger global question, is that some differences that are completely endemic to a society or integral to the society rather, why do some differences become highlighted and not others? After all, I would say that subcontinent is all about gradation of differences all kinds of differences. So the fact that I can go to Chennai and not understand a word, it's because in fact, it's not from the same Indo-European language. And yet I understand when I go to Pakistan much more because Urdu has much more connection to Devanagari and Hindi, if you will. So there is this issue of the gradation of differences and how do we actually recognize it? As gradation of differences in the larger cultural arena that we can actually reimagine and go by using the past. So thank you very, very much for the book for your thoughtful analysis. And let's hope that 20 years from now, the discussions would be different.
1: Thank you. I hope so too. Right. As they say, you know, as they say in Urdu, uh, may may there be ghee and, and, and sugar in your in your mouth for that. Uh, thank you so much, Vishaka. It was really a mm. pleasure
0: talking to you. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you.